Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. This show can only be described as eclectic. A little bit later on, Dot Marie Jones, who just happens to be a 15-time world arm wrestling champion, joins us to talk about a new documentary she's involved in called Golden Arm. Then we'll get directions to Sesame Street from someone we all grew up watching on the famous kids show. But first, let's get to this guy. Oscar-nominated musician, band leader, and television personality John Batiste joins me to talk about his new album, We Are, just one of the many projects he's had going on during our last locked down year. From band leader on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert to scoring the Pixar animated movie Soul to writing and recording this album, he's been a busy guy. We start the interview by talking about his earliest musical memories. Now, when you were eight, you played drums and percussion in your family's band. What kind of music were you playing at that point? We played music that was New Orleans-based funk, soul, R&B, Zydeco, Cajun music. My grandfather's Cajun from Lafayette, Louisiana, the patriarch of the musical side of my family, the Batiste family. And, you know, we played all different styles of, of contemporary music as well. And eventually it turned into the junior family band. And that was me, my cousin Travis, my other cousin Jamal, and our friend Roy. And we played video game themes and all this traditional music. So those were our two bags in terms of repertoire. <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, the mix and match of all sorts of different styles of music that you would have played back then. And then had the addition of uh, video game music on top of all that, because you say you don't believe in genre. You don't think that things need to be pigeonholed into a certain kind of, of thing. Why is that? Is Do you think it's because there were so many influences on you when you were growing up? Well, I think that, to be honest, Richard, I think it's a, a matter of the way that the market is set up and how music is, is bought and sold. And we want to categorize things because it helps to organize. But what that's done is created a system that limits the creativity of the artist and how the artist perceived by the public. A lot of music is hard to put into a genre. And a lot of times artists in these times make music to fit into a genre. And that's backwards. It's fitting into a box isn't the artist way. And music comes from heritage. Music comes from culture. Music comes from a person's spirit, their soul, their ideas, things they're innately born with. And all those things are so vast how could you categorize the output that comes from those things? You see that on the album. There's 200 collaborators on this record. I mean, it, it, there's everyone from Quincy Jones to uh, family members of yours. And I imagine that each of those people uh, brings something new. I understand that you recorded uh, kind of like a rough draft of the album in six days, and then you spent nine months I guess, massaging the material, bringing people in. What was that process like? And did the music change from the the first version of this, recorded in six days, and then you have all these people come in? Did the sound change? And did you learn something from that? Oh, everything changed tremendously. And, and as it should, 
you know, you think about someone who is painting or creating a work of art, and that's how I approach making an album. Um, you think of the Sistine Chapel and, and Michelangelo, and the idea that this took so many years of his life. Mm -hmm. um, the idea comes just like that. When you're inspired, I had the vision from the beginning, but I had to really find all of the right colors, both sonically and narratively, to create this, this novel of an album. And every person that I picked is a different color on my canvas. And the vision comes to life and evolves and changes. And I learn how to work with light better. And I learn how to work with my brushes better. And all these things happen throughout the process of making the art. And you can play a number of instruments. I love that you started on drums and then your mom said you should be playing piano and you do that so well and you you do all sorts of things like that. Does having knowledge of how each section of a band or a piece of music should come together, does that directly influence the way that you write and perhaps the way that you produce when you're in a studio? Absolutely. More so the, the character that I'm envisioning when I hear an instrument or I hear a melody or a lyric that I'm writing or a bass line or everything is a character or a story. I'm a very visual person. And to me, I'm more so inspired by life than I am from the, the inspiration standpoint. I'm more inspired by life than I am by music. You know, I can meet a person in the way they talk or the way that they walk. You know, sometimes Richard, where you talk to somebody and it's just, they sound like they have a novel in their voice. They right. just, it just, it, 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 it inspires me in that way. And sometimes it's best if I'm the one playing those instruments to get the right nuance of that character and the right swag. Other times I need to call James Gadsden to play this part because he's the perfect drummer for Tell the Truth. Or, you know, I got to get my dad on the bass. Or I have to call, you know, the St. Augustine High School marching band. Or I have to call this or that person because they're, the right fit. You're listening to my interview with The Late Show with Stephen Colbert band leader John Batiste. Find his new album, We Are, wherever you buy fine music. Was this recorded during the pandemic in the last year? Yes, it was started September 2019 and we concluded around June of 2020. Um, and throughout this entire time, I'm, I'm recording that. I'm doing television. I'm doing the score for soul. I'm doing all these things at the same time. And the world shuts down when we're on the home stretch of, of not only um, the score for soul, but the album conclusion. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was finished the last three or four months of the, the project were done in the pandemic. And remotely, I'm guessing, right? Uh, via Zoom or somehow in that way, right? Absolutely. You listen to the songs, you know, the song I did with the British novelist Zadie Smith. She was in London and I was in New York City. Da, 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 da. All right, John, what do you want to listen to? You know, we did it via Zoom virtually, and a lot of things were done that way. Uh, there were songs like Cry on this album that for me, when I listen to the lyrics of that, um, I find them deeply moving. Uh, so tell me a little bit about creating that song, because again, I think it's joyful. I think it's optimistic, but sometimes it says, sometimes you just, you can't help yourself, but look around and, and find some despair there and you just have to cry. 
Well, I, I, I love that you, you can keyed into that because a lot of times there's a, a, a mistake of perceiving joy as optimism or even naivete instead of seeing it as realism because mm -hmm. realism is to stare truth in the face and to know what is going on and to still smile. And sometimes you can't smile and that's okay as well. I find myself to be a realist who, who airs towards optimism, even though there's so much joy, I also feel the need to balance the, the joy and temper it with the truth telling. And when you have that, both joy bringing and truth telling together, the album is born. You can't have one without the other. Well, I think your love riots are another example of this, of how you're looking at a very specific uh, feel that's in the world. Things are topsy-turvy, they're upside down. Uh, and I love that you created these, these peaceful protests using music. And it started in Manhattan and it brought people together. Now it's global, they're happening all over the world. You must feel a, a certain sense of pride in the sense that you have taken the thing that that I would imagine has always been a great sense of comfort for you, and that's music, and and read it or wrote it large on on the streets and got other people involved and just made people generally feel better. Mm, yes, I feel good about that. I feel that I have given given of myself in a way that connects with people and that's very moving um these love rides are spontaneous musical processionals that were made for times both good and divided and when you're in a time that's divided these peaceful gatherings of music and of shared intention become so important because they reaffirm our humanity in a time when if you're angry or if you're constantly faced with the choice of picking a side and fighting the other side, you start to lose sight of the other side being human. <laughs> and and um, that's what, what it really was important to highlight for me back when the protests were happening last summer in New York City. And to see all the people that came out and, um, you know, I was leading the march at one point of 10,000 of us and we we're on CNN. And I just had this moment of of um, I felt like I was channeling something. I was speaking words. I don't even know what I was saying in that moment. But looking back on it, it just felt like we were walking in our calling. And I thank God for that. It's beautiful. We're midway through my conversation with Oscar-nominated musician, uh, Stephen Colbert's band leader and television personality, John Batiste. Uh, we're talking about his new album, We Are, which is available wherever you buy fine music. You use the word processional when you uh, describe these marches, and I can't help but think that that is a direct influence from growing up in New Orleans where uh, they have processionals on the street for jazz funerals and that sort of thing. And it's such a, uh, for me, uh, a, a, a joyful celebration 
that the word just seems perfect to me to describe these love riots. Well, that's why I, I called them love riots, because from afar, it looks like a riot simply because it can happen anywhere. We've done them all across the world and no one knows when it's going to happen. Sometimes they're the encore for our shows where we'll bring the audience from the venue and we'll process while playing our instruments from one place to another unsuspecting location. <laughs> Other times we'll plan them, you know, we've done them in the subway stations and in the subway carts in New York City. And from afar, if you don't know what's happening, you hear people screaming and dancing and, and stomping. You think it's a riot that is, is breaking out. Police have even come thinking that it's a riot and then they get there and they realize it's just people singing and dancing next to each other and chanting. And, um, and in the case of the protests last summer, we were chanting in support of lives and in support of voter registration and in support of people getting rid of the apathy that has consumed our political and communal processes and finding ways to reconnect with each other and reconnect with, with the, the, the process. And, and we had record turnout in terms of voter registration and all these things I think were important. Hopefully on the other side of this, when we're all able to go back and, and see live concerts and that sort of thing again, uh, that we take forward with us this idea that music really can be transformational, not 10,000 people on the street all the time, but in our own homes, making us feel better. And, and certainly listening to your new record, there's a real sense there that, that there's uplift. And I think we need that. You can still be distanced and enjoy music together. You can mm -hmm. still be distanced and, and have that sort of gathering, that sort of nurturing therapeutic experience, um, even over the phone. You know, uh, a lot of this album, the We Are album, was made with many people, but a lot of it was done virtually. And um, when you listen to it, it just sounds like love, joy, community still. Then um, it's possible for us to find that in this time. You talk about having a sort of a flow state, you refer to it when you're, when you're making music and when you're, when you're writing. Can you describe what that flow state is like? Oh, it's, it's the moment where you're not thinking and you're not self-conscious. You have this with every person in any field that you can think of. Hopefully you've experienced this where you just seem to be moving forward and doing all the right things without having to think about what the right things are to do. You just go and it's happening and it feels as if you're not conscious of your inner critic mm -hmm. you're watching yourself but instead of watching yourself and criticizing you're watching yourself in awe and also you're out of the way of yourself <laughs> so it feels almost like an out-of-body experience in that sense you're listening to my interview with the late show with stephen colbert band leader john batiste find his new album we are wherever you buy fine music is it something that only comes with uh, real confidence after having spent 25,000 hours playing that piano or whatever it might be? Is it just something that is born of confidence or is it something that just sort of happens and the first time it happens, you understand that things are going to be different from that point on? A lot of times it's born out of mystery or necessity. 
when I say mystery, I mean, it's unknown why it happened, but we've experienced it sometimes where someone um, could be driving up the road and they just getting green lights after green light after green light <laughs> and <laughs> just make the perfect cup of coffee. Another time, you know, it's out of necessity. I, I see this all the time when I go into schools, you have teachers who are just constantly every day, unsung heroes, just flow state. They're nailing it. Teachers, the 10,000 hours we're talking about, it yeah. can apply to, to many different things. <laughs> and, um, but other times it's mysterious. We don't even know how it happens. You, like you find kids who are born and um, savants and, and have the natural innate thing. So I really do think that it's, even when it's after 10,000 hours, it's still in touch with the divine. <laughs> Whether you can explain it or not, it's something divine about flow states. You have been described as a prodigy in your, your earlier parts of your career. Is that a heavy title to have hanging over you? Did it, did it add pressure to you or uh, does it give you a sense of confidence and a sense of uplift? It was really cool to have people consider my work to be on a level when I was younger, because I'd started in, in particular, if you think about my community in New Orleans and my family and my colleagues who have start, started playing professionally when they're, you know, four and five years old, <laughs> I started pretty late. Um, you know, I started playing piano when I was 11. My first professional gig was when I was seven. Yeah, and that's early, but I didn't start playing my primary instrument, the piano, until I was 11. And then by the time I was 13 or 14, people were calling me a prodigy. So it kind of gave me a boost of confidence to know that I had caught up with the rest of the prodigies who I grew up with. <laughs> you know, it was cool to see it happen like that. There's a song on the album called Boyhood, and it's about growing up. And you grew up, as we were been talking about, in an extremely musical family in the most musical city in America, I think, New Orleans. Uh, was there ever a, an outside chance that you wouldn't be a musician? If you would come home and said, you know what, I think I want to be a, an accountant. How <laughs> would that have gone down with the family? <laughs> well, you know, my mother is really very instrumental in me being a musician. But funny enough, she's from a side of the family that has so many different interests. My, my, my mother was, in, was an environmentalist before it was in vogue to talk about climate change. Yeah. Uh, she's retired now, but I'm just thinking about the things she would let us get exposed to early on, all these different activities to kind of satiate our curiosity. You know, as a precocious kid and a quiet kid, it was really cool to have that kind of stuff to pour into my internal world. And um, I don't think that she would have batted an eye if I decided to do something else. Um, even though there was such a strong musical contingency on my father's side in my city, obviously in New Orleans, growing up between Kenna, Louisiana and New Orleans, there's a lot of music, but I think my mother balancing the musical aspect of things I was exposed to with so many other things. I mean, I could see myself in 10 years from now, if I'm able to achieve all the musical visions I have, which are a lot, uh, <laughs> I could end up moving into something else, but I, I still have a lot of unfinished business musically. So you're going to be hearing a lot from me. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not going to go anywhere at this point, but I have a lot of interest to say the least, you know. That was John Batiste. Be sure to watch him on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where he's the band leader. And check out his new album. It's called We Are, and it's available wherever you buy fine music. In this segment, we'll talk about a movie called Golden Arm. It's a buddy comedy that follows a tough female trucker who trains her timid best friend to compete in the National Ladies Arm Wrestling Championship. My guest in this segment is Dot Marie Jones. She plays Big Sexy, the rough-and-tumble mentor who puts her trainees through a rigorous schooling in order to create a winner. You know Dot Marie from her work on television shows like Glee, which earned her three Emmy nominations, uh, other things like Lizzie McGuire from movies like Material Girls. But did you also know she's a 15-time world arm wrestling champion? Here's Dot Marie Jones joining me via Zoom from her home in California to talk about Golden Arm, which is on VOD right now, and some tips on how to win an arm wrestle. Here's Dot Marie. I'm gonna have you fill in for me at the national. That's insane. Is fifteen thousand dollars insane? But first, we train. She doesn't have the fight in her. You're a fifteen-time world uh, arm wrestling champion. Uh, yes. so tell me, how did you get involved in that, first of all? Um, I was always strong because I grew up on a dairy and we, you know, threw bells of hay around. We did all that stuff. And then I was always in sports because I'm the youngest of six and all five of my brothers and sisters were in sports as well. So I did volleyball, basketball and track all through high school and then got a track scholarship into college. And but like I started working out when I was in eighth grade, because I went from five, six to six, one right. in like six months. Part. Yeah. Yeah. And my pain was all in my lower back. So I started lifting weights to strengthen it. And so a friend of mine and I went to this fall festival up in Northern California and they had an arm wrestling tournament. And I'm like, oh my God, look at how beautiful these trophies were like three, four foot tall. And I thought <laughs> that was the coolest thing. So I'm like, oh, I should enter it. How fun. So I entered it and Lori Cole, one of the women who was, a, I didn't know who she was at the time, but she was a world champion in the middleweight class. I beat her and she said, you got to go to Petaluma, which was, I think, a month or two later up in Northern California in Petaluma, California, where they held the world championships, which I had always seen on like Wide World of Sports is what oh, yeah. covered it. So I, I won that tournament and also won a little like i think 200 dollars or 250 dollars and i was like back then that was like an 83 84 that was like a million dollars then yeah, yeah. and um so i found out the information and i went up there and i won my first world title at 19 and i was hooked <laughs> was it just sheer strength of years of weightlifting and and playing in sports and being active um there must be little tips and things when i started i didn't know what the hell i was doing i was just strong and so <laughs> i learned those things most of those things over the years yeah definitely there's tips and tricks and not necessarily tricks it's technique i think but like there's certain things that you will benefit you if you if you pay attention to what's going on and like i've seen a guy who's 185 pounds beat a 400 pound man so you know it's not necessarily all strength well, this is what I was going to ask. So I'll ask you about some of the tips, but how uh -huh. much of it is 
mental. I mean, as you're, you're fairly close to the person that you're, you're, you're competing against. Mm-hmm. And you, I would imagine that eye to eye contact means something. There's got to be a little bit of, of mental play as well. A psych game. Yeah. You try to psych out the other person. There was a guy animal who would go up to the table and he'd open his mouth and have a mouthful of crickets. <laughs> And I mean, just crazy stuff like that. Or he'd go up there and stick a uh, spout in a a quart of motor oil and drink that and then go up to the table. It was it was hilarious. (laughs) But yeah, they the sight game is pretty big in that. And what are some of the the physical tips that you would pass along? Um, Obviously, your grip and you don't want to get them. You want to make sure your your thumb is dug into when you when you grip that person, because you don't want them to take the tip of your thumb, because if they do, you don't really have a good grasp where you wrap your fingers around. Right. It's hard to explain over without yeah. another person. We see the world of underground arm wrestling here. Now, what you're describing, the tournaments that you won, uh, yeah. sound a little different than that. These are your sound... Um, uh, more well, they're world. They were world championships. The underground right. scene is a little different. Is it really like what we see in the film? Does that exist in real life? Apparently, it does. You know, and they pull up these tournaments every so often, and and they go at it. You're listening to my interview with Dot Marie Jones, one of the stars of Golden Arm, now on VOD. It just seems fun with the costumes. Yeah. And the competition and everything right. else. I mean, this sounds, uh, uh, you know, if I was if I was uh, much younger and a lot stronger, I'd be there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I wish I was younger and still would do it. So tell me a little bit about how you became involved in the film. It seems like a natural fit for you. Uh, you know, what's funny is they had somebody else and then um, apparently that person couldn't do it. And then... I don't know how they came to me, but apparently they didn't know that I was a world champion prior to this. And so when they got me in, it was such a fit. Like they let me, um, uh, it was a perfect fit. They let me go ahead and like a lot of this stuff is just improv when I'm telling the girls exactly, you know, what to do and stuff like that, because it's what you do. After being on Glee and other shows like that, that I always have this idea that television is much more uh, formatted, not a lot of room for improv, not a lot of room for uh, probably some of the luxuries that you might have had working on this film. Oh, yeah. uh, was it difficult to adapt to that? Did it feel strange to you? No, it was actually wonderful that yeah. they, you know, it invited my input as to what and how certain things take place in arm wrestling. And like what you said about television and stuff, you, there's not a lot of room for improv unless that's spoken. And you know that because a lot of writers will come and say, no, it's this. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Because I'm a little dyslexic. And so, I mean, I've had a word twisted to where I said the wrong word first and then switched it. And it's like, no, it's this way. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I said it right, but yeah. apparently I did not. <laughs> so you don't miss. You don't step on nose toes because you want to yeah. come back. 
And this film was supposed to uh, do the film festival circuit as yeah. in normal days in the before time. That's what would have happened here. Um, right. And it's not doing that now because we're in the pandemic. Um, tell me a little bit about how you feel about that. How will this film find an audience, do you think? I think, you know, the more we push it and get it out there and April 30th, it's going to be in select theaters yeah. and also available, I believe, on Apple TV. And um, I just think that, you know, we got to get the word out there. And once people see it, it's a fun film. And I think I honestly think that's what we need now. And, you know, we all could use a few good laughs. And I laughed a lot watching this. And it's like it was so dang funny because a lot of it, I wasn't there for the filming. And so I didn't know. And so, oh, my God, when I watched it, it was hilarious. Well, it's very funny. Uh, like like slap your <laughs> knee funny um but what right. I, what but i loved about it um is when you get to the end and i'm not giving anything away here but you mm-hmm. get to the end and it's it's funny all the way through to lamuse you keep going but it's about resilience and yeah. it's about yes. uh, not saying heart. no and it's about heart and you know all those things sound kind of like mushy and maybe sentimental but they're not and as i think right. particularly these days when you know, you look out the window and just everything looks wrong. You know, right. you turn on the news or whatever and everything is just wrong. That a movie right. like this is good because it makes people feel good. Absolutely. And and Hart's song, These Dreams, is in it. So you, Anna and Nancy Wilson, you can't beat that, which <laughs> is funny because that's a good friend of mine, Nancy Wilson. And um, that's my favorite group since I was 13. Wow. So I didn't even know it was in, this, in the film until I watched it. Yeah, it's our favorite song. Now, is there a message that you would hope that people take away from Golden Arm? Just, you know, that for me, it's uh, watching it. It's so funny, but yet there's something in it that's so endearing and sweet. That was Dot Marie Jones. You can see her right now in Golden Arm. It's on VOD and very easy to find. And it's really worth a look. It's a really sweet and funny movie all about resilience. And we can use that message right about now. Let's meet Gordon Depp, lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter for The Spoons. He's written big hits like Romantic Traffic, Nova Heart, Old Emotions, and Tell No Lies. And he's back with a new song called A Better Ending. And here's the cool thing about this. It was co-written virtually with people all across the country. Let's have a listen and a chat with Gordon Depp. Maybe So congratulations on the new single. Thank you very much. It's, it's and, not quite a, a spoon single, but it sort of partly became one. You know, out of COVID boredom, you, you think of projects. And I had never co-written through the internet before. You know, we send files back and forth. I don't even have a home studio. So I bought myself a little digital recorder. I recorded the vocals in my kitchen, watching TV. I'm, seriously, I'm not making... I'm terrible when it comes to technology. But um, it started with... Um, a piano player in PI, Charlottetown, where I go every year because my wife's family, uh, that accompanies me on piano every time I go there. He's quite a good writer. He's like, you know, send me an idea and I'll get it rolling and, and he'll add something. And I've got a drummer who ended up being, you know, related as well, Dave, in Ottawa. And between the three of us, we just send files back and forth, never thinking of really amount too much. Yeah. And then at the end, said, well, this is pretty good. Let's get Sandy to do some real bass on it. 
you know, so hence the Spoons connection. And we did a little very simple video, like everybody at home with their iPhone thing. And same old deal you've seen a million times. But for some reason, this little song is really connected with people because it's so sincere and, and hopeful, I think. Well, I think that's it. And I think people are looking for uplift in the stuff they're listening to and the movies and television that they're watching. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important because as we get further into this, uh, it becomes a little harder to see that hope at the end of the tunnel. It's coming, but yeah. sometimes it, it, it feels like it's kind of dim. And to have something that is uplifting, I think, uh, yeah. is important. You're right. I mean, even in the lyrics, I thought, is this a bit too obvious? Because it doesn't have to be about the pandemic. It could be hopeful about anything in life. But I thought, is this maybe too obvious to know this is exactly what people want? They, they don't want it all cryptic or mysterious. They want just... <laughs> A straight ahead you know, message of hope is we're going to get through this. We'll be okay. And uh, we'll, we'll be fine. Now, when we spoke last, it was about a year ago uh, via Zoom, and the pandemic was relatively new, but you know we were learning to cope and adjust. And you were telling me then that you hadn't been writing songs because uh, you weren't feeling it. Um, what changed? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just time, I guess. And maybe because other guys were involved, you know, and got me sort of pushed me to do it. And I, it was a lot to push me to do this. First, I've never done it before, like with co-writers across the country. I never really had to rely on. I had to learn how to send files to the internet. I'm just really, you know, I'm, I'm from the old school days where you had tape, to, you know, reel to reel tape on the wall. Yeah. Can I do this on my cassette tapes? I said, no. You can <laughs> learn how to do this. So yeah, it took me. Um, and you know what? It became a, a, a weekly thing. We have a little Zoom talk every week and talk about the song, you know, and it became a, a very social thing. Never thinking it would actually amount to much, you know? So, yeah. Well, I think the social element of that is probably the thing that maybe pushed you towards writing the song. That's right. Know? It was just great to be working with somebody. I don't care if it was, you know, real or virtual. It just, it was great to be working again. And uh, tell me uh, just a little bit about the process. You're sending files back and forth. I is there a, a challenge? Because it's obviously, it's a different way of working. Um, mm -hmm. Does it feel different for you? Other yeah. than once you get past the technological stuff, just did the creative part of it feel different to you? I'm, I'm used to it now. It, it, it is a bit weird. Like I say, I was in the kitchen with the dog watching me and sniffing the, the microphone. I was like, what are you doing? You know, because I don't have a home studio. But, I mean, it's so nor normal. Like in my day, when we just, you know, sent our music to the to the record company, we would send them a cassette tape. You know, this is our new idea. Yeah. Totally different world. And obviously, I'm a little behind because most people are so adept at doing this. And luckily, the other guys were, and they 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 taught me real quick. You know, yeah. but part of me doesn't want to. I want to stick in the old way of doing things. You know, I'm still an analog guy, and um, it worked out. We meshed the two together and it worked out really well. And even the vocal, like I said, I was down in the kitchen. I, I could have done a perfect, you know, rock and roll thing over and over. You know, it, it was pretty well a one take wonder because to me, it, it came across really sincere. And when you have a song about this subject, you can't be singing like, you know, Michael Bolton or something. He's got to right. be a little vulnerable and, and a little rough around the edges. And I think that's what it, what it ended up being. You're listening to my interview with Gordon Depp. Find his new single, A Better Ending, on YouTube. Well, I love the idea that it's a, 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 the vocals of one take. I think of Frank Sinatra. I think of David Bowie. I think of all those great singers who rarely ever did more than one or two takes. Sinatra yeah. would only do a second take if there was something really egregiously wrong uh, with the orchestra. And David Bowie was uh, one to embrace the imperfections in a vocal or in a track 
if it uh, furthered the song. If it no, were, I agree. And we had a song called Imperfect. We're all about that. Like, imperfect and real. And that's, that's my motto. And I wasn't even meant to be the master vocal. I just sent them this vocal and said, well, he's a rough, you know, let's just go with it for now. But the more we listened to it, it said, no, let's keep it. It's, it's exactly, you know, the way it connects with people because it's not put on. It's not overly, you know, perfected or, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's real. So. How's the uh, the technological side of all of this for you during the pandemic? You've been making videos at home uh, and and putting them out, and online you seem to have a, a a larger presence now, or you're using it more now, I think, than I had yeah. noticed before. Is that a result of the pandemic? I guess. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody's doing virtual concerts. We've done a few of those to everything from thousand seaters with 50 people in them to completely empty that was the last one we did not not so long ago being beginning of march in oakville yeah so we've done all those things but it was our 40th anniversary this year so we were hoping this is going to be the deferred 40th and who, i don't know but we're moving ahead with all kinds of stuff uh, can you believe it's been 40 years no it blows no. my mind yeah uh, it's it's silly and i and we talked we talked to rob and derek the original guys once in a while same with them like rob for instance he's the same guy who was back when we he joined the band as a 15 year old. It's got the same mentality. And we still have the same, you know, love of what we do. It's crazy. I'm not jaded at all. You know, I get jaded about the way the industry is right now and, and upset and angry and stuff, but my music, I, I run through my songs every day. I run through the spoon songs. I run through the flock of seagulls songs every day. I, you know, just pretending I got a show around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> I said to our, our road guy, just, just make up a fake contract with a fake writer and we'll decide what we want backstage. And, you know, and what time is uh, what time is a uh, lobby call? You know, when we get to sound check, just just to fool our brains into something. Yeah, you know what's happened? I, I've turned into a heavier rocker guy through this pandemic. <laughs> you know, no more Mister Nice Guy. I, I got my Marshall over here, right? Yeah. I put my little lamp away. I got all the pedals. I'm just, I want to rock again. Like I say, <laughs> when things open up, I got to be jumping around stage like like Pete Townsend doing cart. You know, doing what do you call those windmills? Yeah, windmills and stuff. It's just. Yeah, it's got to get it out. We're so pent up and frustrated that those first shows, we're going to be like a bunch of school children <laughs> making fools of ourselves, you know? Well, I see all the guitars behind you. Yeah, there's some just, all waiting patiently. Just waiting to be rocked on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can only play for your dog or your cat so many times and it gets really boring. When do you expect to be back playing? I guess there's no way to know right now. No, um, we have some private sort of outdoor things planned for the summer, like like driving theater kind of things as in June, I think. But for a while, we were ahead of things. We could play more here. Yep. Now we're behind. You know, now things are opening up in other places. That was Gordon Depp, lead singer, guitar player, and songwriter for The Spoons. You can also see him play with A Flock of Seagulls whenever concerts come back. We were talking about his new single. You can find it on YouTube, and it's called A Better Ending. So big thanks for Gordon for stopping by. Also want to thank Dot Marie Jones. Check out Golden Arm on VOD right now. Big thanks goes to John Batiste for talking about his album, We Are. It's been a big show. But my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.